0: the great politician and abolitionist William Wilberforce from Britain called William Cooper his favorite poet. Cooper was a, an 18th century author who as a young man was converted to Christ by reading Romans 3.25 when he was in an asylum because he had suffered a mental breakdown. He read those verse, that verse in which the Apostle Paul writes, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. And as Cooper read those words, he realized that he needed what only Christ could provide. And he turned from his sin and he trusted the Lord Jesus and was converted. The change that happened to Cooper was immediate and lasted throughout his life. Later, he looked back on that experience and he wrote this. The full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made. My pardon sealed in his blood and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. Well, later, Cooper moved to the town of Oldney where John Newton was a pastor. John Newton, whose song we just sang, Amazing Grace. And Newton became not just his pastor, but also his friend. And though Cooper was a sincere Christian, he struggled with severe bouts of depression and a crippling lack of assurance throughout all of his life. Under Newton's influence and friendship, Cooper wrote, Some of the most wonderful Christian hymns that we have had handed down to us. And in some of those hymns, he articulates the struggles that Christians like him have with laying hold of all that God's done for us in Christ in a way that removes doubts and insecurities. One of his hymns that addresses this is called Walking with God. And it includes these lines. Where is this blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul refreshing view of Jesus and his word? You you can understand that struggle. I've tasted it, but it seems far away now. And it goes on. What peaceful hours I once enjoyed. How sweet their memory still. But they have left an aching void the world can never fill. Another one of his songs that addresses this in difficult times under God's providence is God moves in a mysterious way. We sing this song here pretty regularly, and it includes these stanzas. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessing on your head. Another verse says, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. While not all Christians struggle with a lack of assurance, some do. Sin remains in all of our lives, and unbelief can well up and can cloud us from seeing the promises, the blessings, the provisions that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Sin and unbelief can make us forgetful. So that we're no longer keeping in front of us the provisions of a crucified and risen Savior. Uh, Sin can cause us to fall into misunderstanding or forgetting the nature of the salvation. Not only that God does save sinners, but the way that He saves sinners. And how that salvation works. The Apostle Paul knew this. He understood that those who have been saved by God's grace in Christ can struggle with assurance and that we all need assurance and Paul knew that God's way of justifying sinners to himself is the great antidote to unbelief and doubt that can remain in sincere Christians if doubts and fears come to you about your standing before God Then what Paul writes in the book of Romans. And particularly in this passage we've been looking at for the last several weeks. Is specifically designed by God to help you. To show you and remind you and ground you. In the fact that the salvation we have. Is all by his grace. It is completely provided. From beginning to end. By our God who loves us and gave up his son for us. So Paul spends a great deal of time and effort in this book of Romans explaining the doctrine of justification. We've been studying through Romans now for quite some time, and you recall back in chapter 3, verse 21, he begins to unpack this doctrine of justification by grace through faith. He does this all the way through the end of chapter 5, and he's emphasizing time and again that it's not anything we do It's all God's grace. It's not anything we can earn or accomplish. It's only through faith in what God has graciously given us in Jesus that anyone can be justified. The God who saves us by His grace keeps us saved by His grace. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot, by yourself, in your strength, keep yourself saved. It is grace from beginning to end. To end. The doctrine of justification. Guarantees this. Well in our last several studies. We've been looking at Romans chapter 5. Verses 15 through 21. Where Paul explains. How sinners can be justified. By being united to Jesus Christ. In this section of his letter. Paul makes the case by showing. How Adam the first man. Is a type of Jesus Christ. The second man. And we see both Adam and Jesus were established by God to be representatives of people so that what they did has consequences for the people they represent. Well, today we come to the climax of this argument by the Apostle Paul and it's found in verses 18 and 19 of Romans chapter 5. That's going to be Our text this morning, in this text, we're going to see how God's way of justifying sinners provides a basis for the hope-filled assurance that everyone who trusts in Jesus should attain. So please follow along in a copy of God's Word. The text is Romans 5, 18-19. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you'll see that on page 942. I'm going to start reading again in verse 12, because this is the key section in all of the letter. It's the hinge on which everything else that follows turns. So hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 5, as I begin reading in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Just as you were made a sinner in Adam, so also you are made righteous in Christ. That's Paul's main point here in this section of his letter. He wants us to understand the way... That God justifies sinners. And he wants us to believe it with complete certainty. So that we might live our lives in confidence that God loves us. He is for us. For Christ's sake. Paul recapitulates the argument in verses 18 and 19 that he's been building from verse 12 through verse 17. You recall when we looked at verse 12 and then other times as well in this passage, I made the point that in most of our English Bibles, after verse 12, you see a dash or you might see a parenthesis, which indicates to us that the Apostle Paul is interrupting his thought. He starts to make this great point, this grand overarching point, but before he reaches the conclusion. He wants to give some explanation. He wants to drill down a little bit. And so what we have in verses 13 and 14 is Paul expanding upon the universality of sin and death. The first sin of Adam brought sin and death. And Paul wants to make sure we understand that this is universal. And then in verses 15, 16, and 17, he drills down to show the superiority of Christ and his work to Adam and his work. So today, we come to verse 18, where Paul once again picks up his main point and brings it to a conclusion. If you want to get this main point in the flow of Paul's argument, you can just read verse 12 and then skip down to the middle of verse 18 and read it in verse 19, and you'll hear it very simply stated. Let me do that, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread To all men, because all sinned, and then if you go to verse 18, he he just recapitulates in the first clause what he says in verse 12, therefore is one trespass led to condemnation for all men, and he completes his thought beginning in the middle of verse 18, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Just as you were made a sinner in Adam, so you are made righteous in Christ. That's his point. The reason that we need to understand how God dealt with us in Adam is so that we can be assured of how he will deal with us In Christ. Now, this will become apparent as we just work our way through these two verses and we compare the actions of Adam and Christ to the consequence of those actions of both Adam and Christ. So, let's look at the action first of all. What is Paul focused on first that Adam did and then that Christ has done? Now before we do this, let me just point out something in verse 18 that some people stumble over. And I don't want you to stumble over it. When Paul says that uh, this has happened in a way that results in consequences for all men. He's not teaching that what Jesus did saves everybody. The the all men there is teaching is tied to the one man of whom Paul is speaking. And this is all throughout this whole text. He has the one and the many. What one did had implications for many whom that one represented. And that's true for Adam, all in Adam. And that's true for Christ, all who are in Christ. So what is the action of Adam that Paul wants us to not forget? Verse 18, he calls it one trespass. Verse 19, he calls it one man's disobedient. What is this a reference to? It's a reference to Adam's sin in the garden of Eden. We've read about this in recent weeks, but let me just remind you in Genesis chapter 2, after God had created Adam and he placed him in the garden and he commissioned him, he said this, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, Genesis 2.17 says, But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So he gives him the whole garden. And he says, there's one tree here that I'm reserving from you. And you're not to eat from the fruit of that tree. And then you read in Genesis 3, when the devil comes and tempts Eve, that she eats and Adam eats. Genesis 3, 6 says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that there, it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Paul, thinking about that scene, says it was the one man's trespass. That word trespass means a, a false step. It means uh, to stumble or to fail to keep, in this case, the will and revelation of God. He also calls it then disobedience in verse 19. This, this is a rare word, uh, rare not just in the New Testament, but outside the New Testament. It means a failure to hear or a refusal to heed what you have been given as instruction. Well, Adam's trespass and disobedience include All of the dispositional thoughts and attitudes that go before and along with the act of eating. Because if you think about it, you could break down what happened in that scene in Genesis 3 into what he was thinking, what he was doing and not thinking and doing before he actually ate the fruit. I mean, our text says, Genesis 3.6 says, he was with Eve. The devil came to Eve, and Adam, whom God commissioned to be the head of Eve, the leader of Eve, sat there and did nothing while his wife is being tempted, seduced, misled by this devil. I mean, he should have engaged right then. So, their dispositions, their attitudes of failure that take place, and yet. Paul would have us see all of those expressed in the physical act of eating. Adam's failure is contrasted with Christ's success. Adam's action brought sin into the world. What he did has consequences. And as Paul highlights what Adam did, he wants us to see it in contrast to what Christ Jesus has done. So over against the one trespass and one man's disobedience, Paul refers to one act of righteousness in verse 18 and one man's obedience in verse 19. So what is the one act of righteousness that Paul speaks of in verse 18? Well, some suggest that this is a reference to the act of God justifying sinners. Because it's the same word that's used in verse 18 as is used in verse 16 when justification, the act of justification, is clearly in mind. However, there's good reason not to see Paul using that word in the same way in verse 18. First, because if he were using it that way, it would break the parallel that he's been building between Adam and Christ. He's focused on specific actions of Adam and specific action of Christ. But would also result in an awkward rendering of that portion of the verse. If what he means by an act of righteousness is the act of justification, then here's how we would have to read that portion of verse 18. One act of justification leads to justification and life. And so it's an awkward reading. So for good reasons, from that in the context in verse 16, we shouldn't see Paul using the word in the exact same way in verse 18. This is a clear reference in verse 18 to what Jesus did. I mean, the context demands that. But what one act of Jesus does Paul specifically have in mind? Now, some good students and commentators of the Bible say, well, the one act, is the death of Jesus on the cross where He made atonement for sin. Certainly, certainly it includes that. Absolutely. But I think it is better to see that idea of one act of righteousness as not being limited to the death of Jesus. Rather, I think Paul here is seeing the whole event of Christ's life and death and resurrection as one act of righteousness. Listen to the way that the late systematic theologian from Westminster Theological Seminary, John Murray, explains this. He says, if the question be asked how the righteousness of Christ could be defined as one act of righteousness, the answer is that the righteousness of Christ is regarded in its compact unity in parallelism with the one trespass. And there's good reason for speaking of it as the one righteous act. Because as the one trespass is the trespass of the one. So the one righteousness is the righteousness of the one. And the unity of the person and of his accomplishment must always be assumed. So Adam sinned. And that sin then became characteristic of his life and his legacy. Jesus accomplished righteousness not just in one moment and one day, but over the whole course of his life, including his death and his resurrection. And that characterizes his action and his legacy. This will become clearer as we look at the second way that Paul describes the action of Christ. In verse 19. There he describes it as one man's obedience. Obedience. What's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus' obedience to the law of God. Paul refers to this in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 5. When he's reminding the Galatian churches of how God sent his son into the world. So in Galatians 4, 4 he writes. But when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son born of woman. Born under the law, obligated to keep the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ's obedience to God's law includes what theologians call both his active righteousness and his passive, his active obedience and his passive obedience. We teach our children this in the children's catechism when we ask them, what did Christ undertake in the covenant of grace? And they are taught to respond to keep the whole law for his people and to suffer the punishment due to their sins. To keep the commandments positively, to do that actively and passively to lay down his life as an atonement for sin." God requires righteousness from his image bearers and that righteousness can be found only in the complete and unbroken obedience to his commandments. Now obviously I trust everyone in this room is honest enough to admit none of us has done that. All of us have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God that would be manifested in complete unbroken obedience to his commandments. We are sinners. The only way that we can provide the righteousness that God requires of us is if we receive it as a gift from someone else. Jesus is that someone else. Jesus has earned righteousness by his obedience, and he gifts it to everyone through faith. While he was on earth, he completely did what God required. He actively fulfilled everything required of him as a real man. And then, though he had no sin of his own, he had nothing to pay for before God's law. God's law did not have any claims upon him for condemnation. He voluntarily laid down his life on the cross. He passively obeyed the demands of the law that says, The soul that sins must surely die. And because the people he was representing had sinned for their sake, he had to die. We all have sinned. So either we must die for our sin. Or someone else must die for our sin. Well, Jesus Christ is that someone else. By his life and death, he has perfectly fulfilled the law's just demands for perfect righteousness. He has done it through his active obedience, and he's done it by providing a full atonement for sin through his passive obedience. It is this act of righteousness, this obedience, that encompasses both the life and death of Jesus that Paul has in mind in verses 18 and 19 of our text. Adam failed. In his mission. When he sinned. Christ successfully completed. His mission. With every step he took on earth. And with his dying breath. When he cried out. It is finished. Two men. Same mission. To fulfill the law. For, whom those, for those whom they represent. The first man failed. The second man. Succeeded. That's the way that Paul compares the actions of Adam and Christ. Let's consider next how he compares the consequences of those actions. First, let's look at the consequences of Adam's sin. Verse 18 says the consequence is condemnation for all men. Verse 19 says the consequence is many were made sinners. Condemnation is God's. Just judgment against sinners. So Adam's sin, Paul says, resulted in God treating everyone as sinners under his just judgment. And the reason that he could do that justly is because in Adam's sin, we also became sinners. Adam's sin made us sinners, verse 19 says. Why is this? It's because God, God made Adam the covenant or federal head of the whole human race. So what he did has impact on everybody that he was representing. And we say, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. His sin constituted you and me and everyone as sinners. This is the way that God designed the world. Paul isn't debating it. He's not trying to explain why God did it this way. Rather, he's simply stating the truth of it. He's giving us facts that we need to understand if we're going to relate to God properly and live well in His world. Each one of us has been constituted a sinner because of Adam's first sin. And because of that, each one of us has also been condemned because of Adam's first sin. Well, that's one side of the argument. And Paul has emphasized this throughout this passage, beginning in verse 12. But he lays it out for us in such stark terms so that we will appreciate the other side of the argument. What are the consequences of Christ's action? Well, he says in verse 18, the consequence of Christ's action is justification and life for all men. Verse 19, he says, the consequence is that the many will be made righteous. Justification. We've looked at this from the middle of, or the latter part of verse or chapter 3. It is God granting full forgiveness for every sin that a person has ever committed or ever will commit. And it also includes God pronouncing sinners righteous, righteous, having fulfilled every obligation of his law. This justification determines life for us. This is why Paul, when he announces the theme of the book of Romans in Romans 1, 16 and 17, says the just shall live by faith. We live by faith by faith we're declared righteous in God's sight through Christ and as we trust Christ we live in that trust that we have in Christ sin no longer condemns those who are in Christ by faith death no longer dominates those who are in Christ through faith just as verse 17 says we reign in life Through the one man, Jesus Christ. So that's one way of looking at the consequence of Christ's righteous act. But then in verse 19 he says, Through the obedience of the one man, the many are made righteous. That is, we're constituted as righteous. We're installed in a position of righteousness in the sight of God. Now, this does not mean that Christians have been made inwardly, perfectly righteous in every way as Jesus is. Though one day we will be. One day we will be completely free from sin in our thoughts, in our affections, in our choice. And we will see him and we will be like him because of the work that he has done. But what Paul means here by saying the many will be made righteous, is that God regards us as completely righteous right now for the sake of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is our covenant or federal head. He represents everybody who trusts in Him. So when you trust in Him, you look at what He did and you can believe that what He did counts for you. So in Him, because of what He did, you are made righteous. I love the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones explains this. He writes, yes, the people who belong to God are made righteous. Give the word made its full content. It means constituted. Put into the category of. Judicially regarded as. And this is what it means here. As it meant the same thing on the other side in our relationship to Adam. Here's the point Paul is making. Brothers and sisters, it's profound. Just as you were constituted a sinner in Adam. So, through faith in Christ, you are constituted righteous in Christ. And we need to take God at His word here. We need to believe what He's saying here. Our right standing before God is secure in Christ. Your sinnership is a fact because of who Adam is and what Adam did. And your salvation and righteousness is just as much a fact because of who Jesus is and what He did. So do you see why Paul goes to such great lengths to emphasize that it was because of the one sin of Adam that many were made sinners? It is so that we might more clearly see the other side of his argument that the results of Christ's righteous obedience to God's law are as certain for us as the consequences that flow to us from Adam's disobedience. So Christian, what this means is you're constituted righteous in Christ. God regards you as righteous. He doesn't regard you as a person who can only offer Him filthy rags. He regards you as His child. He regards you as one who's completely justified before His law. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you've been made righteous. In his sight. Paul wants us to understand this. Our eternal salvation is secure. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I know that, that we have here this morning, those of you that are not trusting Christ. We're so glad you're here. We hope that you will keep coming and come anytime and engage us. We'd love to talk to you about any of this. But I, I want you to see this morning. What this text has to say to you. You're guilty before God. You're sinful before God. And his law hangs over you. It threatens you. Because you are in your sin. And your father Adam. Brought sin into this world. Brought condemnation into this world. And you were constituted a sinner in him. And you need righteousness. That God alone supplies. And that righteousness. He has supplied once and for all time in the life and death and resurrection of His Son. So trust His Son. Come to Christ. Believe the Gospel. This is good news for people like you and me. Confess and acknowledge that you don't have what God requires and you'll never have it. But also confess as God has equally revealed that that righteousness you need has been provided in another. It's been provided in Jesus. And trust Jesus. And take God at his word. That for Jesus sake. He makes you righteous. In his sight. Until a person. Is born again. And turns from sin. And trust Jesus as Lord. That person will remain. Related. United to Adam. So that the action of Adam have consequences for his life but once you trust Jesus you are delivered from sin and its consequences its condemnation and you're made righteous in him so again friend I would just plead with you believe on the Lord Jesus trust him today God will accept you God will change your life God will regard you as righteous and you will be welcomed into his family forever why because of the obedience of Jesus Christ our Lord J. Gresham Machen was a theologian who stood firm in the face of rising theological liberalism in the early 20th century and he refused to back up and he refused to call evil good and it cost him dearly and he was ultimately thrown out of the church where he had long been a minister of the gospel. He helped in the formation of Westminster Theological Seminary. He understood this and he loved this idea of the righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ. And Against doctor's orders, near the end of his life, he was sick, he had pneumonia. He traveled to South Dakota in order to minister to a, a small group of small churches there and, and he fell ill. And on his deathbed, the pastor in whose home he was, was called to his side. And Machen dictated a telegram to be sent to John Murray, the systematic theologian at Westminster. And this is what he said. I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Brothers and sisters, that is our hope. You look at your life and on your best day and your best moments, what well, we, we see sin mixed with our thoughts, mixed with our actions. And you can never get to the full source of it because you think, well, I, I wanted to do what was right and I did what was right, but did I want to do it completely for right reasons? Or was there any selfishness or self-serving mixed in that? And you just go crazy. You know that that you're not yet what you ought to be. And and so if you're not careful, you can let those things come in. Into your thinking about, well, how could God accept me then? How could God love me? How could God really be for me? What we've got to do is look to Christ. Who obeyed completely. And his obedience makes you righteous in God's sight. Well, William Cooper struggled with his doubts and fears and lack of assurance throughout all of his life up until the moment he died at age 68. In much of that time, he couldn't find any comfort even in the reassurances of his friends or from the promises of God's word that he knew well and he, he wrote hymns to help people sing about. His friend, Dr. Johnson, who was a distant relative also, kept him in his home in his last months of life and cared for him. And Dr. Johnson writes this to describe the death of Cooper. He says, when death finally came to him, just before he took his last breath, he wore a look of holy surprise. Like, it's true. God accepts me. His friend and pastor, John Newton, upon hearing of the death of Cooper wrote a farewell poem to cooper, which in which he imagined what he would say to him when they met again in heaven. Listen to what Newton wrote. "I told thee, thy God would bring thee here, and God's own hand would wipe away thy tear while I should claim a mansion by thy side. I told thee so." For our Emmanuel died. Yeah, Emmanuel, God with us, God's own son, became one of us. And he lived a life of perfect obedience to God's commandments. And that he died under the curse of God's law against lawbreakers. And because of that, brothers and sisters, God will forever be for us. You are secure in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for this incredible gospel. This salvation that has been secured for us in the person and work of your Son. This righteousness that has been given to us from another, from Jesus. Help us to take you at your word. Help us to believe. That just as we were made sinners in Adam, so through faith, we are made righteous in Christ. I pray for my brothers and sisters here who struggle with assurance. Oh, Spirit of God, come and seal this truth to their hearts. That they might rejoice today going home with confidence that Christ has lived and died and been raised from the dead. To secure their eternal salvation. And make us joyful proclaimers of this good good news. Hear our prayers. Answer us according to your will for Jesus' sake. Amen.